Well, I'm glad we got that over. <laughs> Now, uh, aren't you going to show me Rome? Yes, but first of all, I want to show you the Fontana di Trevi. Ah, the Fontana di Trevi. Yes. Three coins in the fountain. <laughs> so romantic. Are you going to throw a coin in the fountain, Sophia? No, darling. Hmm? I'm going to throw you in it. Oh, I've got a charming of it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what is this thing over here? I want some lasagna immediately. Yes? Please. Hello and welcome to GoonPod, the podcast which holds a ginger glass eye up to the Goon Show and the Goons themselves. Each episode, a guest and I examine a, a particular aspect of the Goons universe, uh, although Cucumber Castle from 1970 might be a bit of a stretch, the um, <laughs> Bee Gees film which Spike appears in. Joining me this week is the writer and broadcaster, Tim Worthington. Hello, Tim. Hello. Well, I call myself occasional broadcaster because I'm afraid I'm more often to be found writing than broadcasting, but you know, that's that's the nature of the beast. Now, I don't want to, at this stage, at this early stage, get too highfalutin, Tim, but it, it used to be said that uh, Coleridge was the last man alive who'd read every book ever published. Now, I've listened to a lot of your podcast, uh, Looks Unfamiliar, and every single time I come away thinking, that Tim Worthington He's seen or heard every show from the last 60 years. <laughs> It seems like it. Your knowledge of obscure or, or really you know, forgotten TV programs or ads or general pop culture is really, really impressive. You know, someone talks about you know, a US kids TV show about uh, a hobo who's got a magic banjo or whatever, and, and you've seen it. It's just, I mean, where does, this, where does all this come from? Well, I always put it down to the fact that basically, I mean, this is stuff I'm just interested in, but in a, in a sense, it's my football in that I was never really interested in sports, even though, you know, I'm not kind of one of these people that, you know, will complain on Twitter and say, oh, no, there's another game of feated ball on TV, you know, as, as if what they want to see isn't on every other night of the year. But, I mean, I was from the sort of background where, you know, Most of my family are very, very big on football. It just never really interested me. And I was more interested in reading about films and reading Marvel comics and things like that. And it all just came from there, really, because it's, you know, when you've exhausted kind of your entry points or something, where do you go next? And it just so happened that I was all about, you know, 60s pop music, ridiculous films and so on. And, you know, when you've been through the obvious ones, you get into the, the hard stuff, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, because well, I can I can identify with that because I I grew up in a country where sport was all conquering. So rugby, cricket, any sport really was considered sacrosanct, and 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 I just had no interest in it. Um, I was much more interested in just watching watching cartoons, reading books, and I could read books without moving my lips. And as a result, I was kind of looked upon as a little bit suspect in the little small town that I <laughs> grew up in. So yeah, I can certainly identify with that. So. Tim, obviously, this is a podcast dedicated to uh, the Goon Show and the Goons themselves. Where was your sort of entry point? Did you get into them through Python and the Goodies, for example? Did you then go and seek the Goons, or how did you sort of find them? Well, I think you're already on the right lines. I mean, it's a bit kind of a how long have you got sort of question, because the really interesting thing is that, unlike most of the guests you've had so far on this, I was never really a fan of the Goons. 
in that sense of actually, you know, following what they did, following the other things they did and so on. They were kind of just an adjunct to other things that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is interesting because it shows what an enormous cultural impact they had, what an effect they had, that through osmosis, really, through being interested in, say, you know, the obvious one is George Martin, but Monty Python, the Beatles, all kinds of things like that, all seem to lead back to the goons. I mean, my father was a huge first-time goons fan, You know, he had all, well, I've got them now. He had the singles. He had that LP where it's got Tales of Old Dartmoor and the re-recording of Dishonored. He also had a chromatic harmonica because he liked Max Geldre's stuff, which I don't know how far he ever got with that. Again, I've now got that, and I like to (laughs) think I can play it. I'm sure most people would disagree. But the thing was that it was quite difficult, weirdly, compared to a lot of other things, to actually get to experience the Goon Show unless you went hunting for it, unless you bought one of those BBC Records and Tapes albums with the two episodes with... It was always inconsistent whether to have the musical interludes or not from memory. I mean, I should know this because, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book about the BBC Records and Tapes albums, but, you know, that, that wasn't something if you were a child who just heard that the Goons existed and you'd seen Spike Milligan on a couple of things and Harry Seacombe on Highway and you've seen the Pink Panther films and have maybe heard the name Michael Benteen just in the background. I mean, I remember being very aware of Spike Milligan, particularly he read a story, a John Antropos story on Jack and Ori called Help, I'm a Prisoner in the Toothpaste Factory in about 1979 or 1980. I remember that being a really big thing because I was at the age where, you know, you would still ask the teacher for help with your spelling and I remember a boy being asked by the, the primary school teacher, they're very unusual words to want to know how to spell prisoner and toothpaste factory. And he'd obviously be <laughs> writing in his school diary about help I'm a prisoner in the toothpaste factory. So I was aware of that. I was aware of Highway, which I was really enjoyed in the kind of surrealist kind of way, because, you know, what else was on television on Sunday? It was kind of things about, you know, news for farmers and all kinds of, not quite fire and brimstone, but very kind of straight-faced religious documentaries. In the middle of you, you've got Harry Seacombe comes out, stands in the grassy bit in the middle of a dual carriageway and sings to some <laughs> blacksmiths about how God made the trees. Michael Benteen, I do remember Potty Time being on. And after that, he was kind of a bit quiet, really. I know he was on Radio 2 at one point with a sketch show, but he was... Mm, that was good. It, well, I've later since, you know, re-listened to it. And yes, it was really good, but there were things like... I think I remember an episode of It's a Square World being repeated by the BBC, but it was too on too late for me to watch. That probably would have been in the early to mid-80s, maybe. And, you know, people talked about those shows of his. I mean, you know, I mentioned my father before. He remembers watching a show called Fred and Help, It's a Catherine yeah. Tube show and things like that. And you know, things like that you just never saw. The bits I was aware of, the goons, were... Things like, I remember seeing a clip from the Thames TV, is it Tales of Men's Shirts they did with John Cleese? Yes. On something and thinking, that doesn't look very exciting. (laughs) And there was a programme that used to be on BBC Two on a Sunday, again, you know, a rare bit of entertainment on a Sunday called Windmill, which was basically a clip show raiding the BBC's archives, uh, the Windmill Road archive, presented by Chris Searle, where it'd have a theme each week, say, you know, music or the seasons or whatever. I can't remember what the theme was, but it had a clip for the telegoons. 
And I remember oh, being yeah. intensely amused for all the wrong reasons that the Seagoon puppet looked exactly like Carrie Seacombe. I think he was thrown off a moving train or something. <laughs> it doesn't actually sound very funny or suitable for children when you describe it like that. I was going to say, the Telegoons look like they've been pulled out of a canal, those puppets, didn't yeah. <laughs> the two Ronnies, there was a kind of compilation, you know, well, they did. Endless compilation, though, 27 million years of the two Ronnies. But there's one where they had the Phantom Raspberry Blower of Old London Town. I remember noticing Spike Milligan's name in that. And he was always good value on things like Blankety Blank and chat shows and so on. But this is the bit you're going to get letters about. I remember because I was a very, very big Python fan from a very young age. And particularly the TV shows. But there was always that thing about people saying, oh, well, they just copied Q5 which was, yeah. a, you know, yeah. a really difficult thing to get to see. I later found out there was a BBC video, The Best of Q, which I think was mainly from the later seasons, but I think there's a lot of it about was repeated in the late 80s, and then there was the, the Q Milligan compilations. I remember watching them and thinking, is that it? Is that really what I'm supposed to be <laughs> reverential about? Now, I've since seen, you know, full editions of it, the early ones, Q5 in particular, I do think there is something remarkable about them. I think it, you know, the way it walks almost into, I would call it the margins of television itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way it shows the rough edges. I mean, later on, the sketches are just, you know, Hitler and women with large breasts. And it's that <laughs> that's what most people are exposed to about Q. And I think on that evidence, his reputation isn't deserved. But the other thing is that, I don't buy that thing at all. I mean, obviously they were doing a similar thing, but Python did what they were doing in a much more accessible way. I mean, one thing I've been astonished to find out in recent years is a lot of their sketches, which just look like they're just funny ideas now or, you know, a funny send-up of a BBC Two discussion programme, they were actually referencing specific things like films and records and so on that were around at the time that have sort of been forgotten about now. I mean, one thing I was always puzzled by is, you know, the sketch The Baron? Oh, sorry. The right. Bishop. You know the sketch The, Bi- the Bishop, where mm. it's, you know, it's kind of a send-up of an ITC serial, but the audience have hysterics at one part yes. of the animated opening titles. And I could never figure out why that was until I saw a 1969 ITV crime drama called Big Breadwinner Hog, which is a huge yes. thing at the time. Peter Egan is a kind of like mod who wants to make it big in the London underworld. And it, it was a massive hit, but also it was incredibly violent. It was nearly taken off air a couple of times. And the opening titles of The Bishop directly parody the opening titles of that. Yeah, because the thing is, was it the first episode of that that a guy gets acid thrown in his face? He does, yes. It's not a, not a pretty scene. I mean, just the last thing I want to say about the kind of Q Python thing is that they were doing very similar sketches. You know, in Do Not Adjust Your Set, the last 1948 show, the stuff they wrote for David Frost and so on, you know. And that was before Q5. What were they copying in that? A goon reel? Yeah. <laughs> so... Tim, you've, you've come on today and I asked you, obviously, what you wanted to cover, what you wanted to use as a jumping off point. And you asked to talk about the 1960 LP, Peter and Sophia, uh, the collaboration with Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren. 
off the back of the Millionaires film, uh, produced by George Martin. What was the reason that that sort of jumped out at you as what you wanted to talk about? Well, a number of reasons. I mean, I've always loved this album. I'll come back to when I first got it in a minute. But there's the whole George Martin angle of it. It's the fact that it's probably, I would wager, I mean, I've not got access to any sort of details like this. I would hazard a guess, knowing what I do about, you know, the popular culture at the time, the way the industry worked, it probably sold the best out of all of his albums. And yet it's the most forgotten. It doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, mm. as I was astonished by. Mm. And the other thing is that it's a difficult album to talk about these days because it does some things very, very right and does some things very, very wrong. Mm. And it's interesting to to weigh up that balance, really. So when did you first come across this album? Well, I first got it I quite a bit later than I got the other Peter Sellers albums. Than, and also I got the Benteen albums by that point as well. And that what's that dreadful one with Spike Milligan and the other bloke doing comedy folk songs between oh. Spike doing his adult poems, which... Oh, I like I, that. I really don't like that. That's, um, that's, <laughs> um, that's uh, Spike and Jeremy Taylor at Cambridge. That's it, yeah. I'm not, I'm not mad on that one. <laughs> and uh, I also have a Reader's Digest Harry Seacombe box set, which I bored because it's it's kind of like collections of his you know his operatic readings and so on but the covers that they give to individual discs are you know there's one of uh the great artists or something and he's you know got a palette and a yes. stuck on beard and so on it's hilarious but i've been buying all of these you know 60s soundtrack comedy records and so on like lesser known pop records and so on for a while because in those days you could still get things quite easily mm. In charity shops and so on, I'd always been put off Peter and Sophia by goodness gracious me, which I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Which even as a small child, I wasn't that comfortable with. But I eventually got it because I became more aware of the goons kind of in my late teens when I think there's something on Radio 4 in about 1990 called Spike's Pick of the Goons, where it was mm-hmm. he would do a little introduction to them and then they play, you know, one of the more pro it was always the more prominent episodes. And I remember as well that I got any book there was out of the library that was in the film and TV section and read it, no matter what it was about. Because, yep. you know, again, yep. there was less access to this stuff in those days. One of the things I got out was the Goon Show Companion, which mm. Even though I say, you know, I wasn't that interested in The Goons per se, that was a fascinating book, the way it was put together. You know, it, it kind of really influenced me a lot. I remember having hysterics and things like some of the episode titles, like Foiled by President Fred, which I still think yeah. is a superb title. <laughs> and Peter and Sophia I got eventually when it will have been when I was home for Christmas after my first term at university. I can't remember if it was Radio 2 or Radio 4, but in the week before Christmas, something was cancelled that should have been on late at night. And they put Spike's Pick of the Goons on instead. And I remember listening to a couple of them and really, really having hysterics in Napoleon's piano in particular. Mm. And then when everything reopened after Christmas, I was in, funnily enough, a very large ox farm adjacent to Penny Lane, which... You know, it's the whole George Martin link. I hadn't thought about that till now. But I saw Peter and Sophia in there and thought, do you know what? I'll give that a go. And I didn't really, really like all of it, which we'll come back to. But 
I love the interplay between the two of them. I like the balance of songs and sketches. I just loved it as an artifact, really. That, you know, imagine now sort of a really big movie star and a really big comedian just doing an album because they felt like it because they had a good time making something, They were, which was The Millionaire S, which is kind of the film that inspired Goodness Gracious Me, although people think it's from it. It isn't, actually. The Millionaire-S has this rather serious, uh, thoughtful character played by Sellers, uh, the Indian doctor who feels Sophia Loren's character's pulse. And she's got a very, very fast heartbeat. And I think it was Sellers then suggested to Herbert Kretzmer that he write this Goodness Gracious Me song, which sort of incorporates that boom, booty, boom, booty, boom. But yeah, the song isn't actually in the film. No, it was a standalone single, wasn't it? And it was a hit. And then there was Bangers and Mash, the follow-up, which we will come back to. And then the album. And The Millionaire S is a good starting point for, you know, the album and for goodness gracious me, because it's a very good film that isn't really acceptable now. I mean, worse than that, how difficult is The Party from later in the 60s, which is an absolutely fantastic film. It's a brilliant film. And I will say this, Peter Sellers' character is the only decent character in it. The only one who's not pretending to be something he's not. The the one who, you know, although he gets everything wrong, thinks of other people, but it's an incredibly caricature performance. Yeah, well, the the Indian characters he plays, with the possible exception of the Indian character he plays in The Goon Show, the Indian characters mm-hmm. he plays in films do tend to be very kind, thoughtful individuals. It's the fact that it's a, a white man in brown face that makes it so problematic today. It is, but I think the thing about this is, I, the first thing to emphasise is kind of like the Beatles, who, you know, early on in their career, I mean, they did help. You can find interviews where they're doing that accent and yep. you know i assume doing the head side to side but you just can't see it because it's radio only <laughs> but they are being positive about immigration is that one where you know paul basically says you know why not be nice to these fellas and john you know chimes in with yeah it makes you day when you get on a bus and a fella says and you know and he says it in an accent which doesn't help but you know it's positivity and then they later on to went on to be genuine champions of Indian culture, as did Peter Sellers. Oh, yeah. That really is forgotten about now. He was, and, and he obviously he was friendly with George Harrison as well, and I think yeah. that, that played into it. But it was in 1962, Sellers was invited to speak at the Cambridge University India Society, um, and they wouldn't have invited him if they thought he was sort of just making a mockery of their culture. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it was a different time. And the important thing to remember about Peter Sellers is, I would even say this mostly about about Spike Milligan, although there are some things that I really do think "Mm," about, but it is mostly there is no malice there. It is simply that, you know, we we rightly consider this unacceptable now. I'm sure there were people at the time who thought it was unacceptable, but... He was somebody who found certain mannerisms funny in a way that he, same way that he sort of did, you know, maybe Cornish stereotypes and so on, which <laughs> yes. there's a little less of a problem with. And to him, it was just part of his comic repertoire. I am convinced that, you know, later on, in fact, on Seller's Market, 
he does actually show a hint of regret about all of that because there's the All England George Formby finals, which is oh yes, a superb sketch, you know, which is about <laughs> 15 minutes with all these ridiculous George Formby impersonators. But there's he come he starts doing that accent thinking God in the homes of the home guard. And the contestant gets expelled for being Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers. As if, you know, they're sleeping yes. sitting on each other's shoulders. <laughs> but he's clearly, you know, saying, that's not a real voice. That's what I used to do. <laughs> no, so he, he obviously had some regret there. And I think he would have been quite shocked to have seen, you know, how it came to be regarded later on. There's a tendency now to not look at... I mean, context is an excuse people use, but there's the actual, the actual intent has to be considered. And I think that whereas now, you know, I'm not comfortable with the goodness gracious me as a song, but on the one hand, you know, that people have got to stop acting as if, I mean, he, it's not pleasant, but he wasn't Adolf Eichmann. He was just somebody doing <laughs> what his audience wanted at that point. And, you know, he didn't tend to hurt any of anyone with it. On the other hand, you know, you've got those lunatics who act as though... I mean, this stuff, it belongs in its time, in the past. It belongs in a place where you can seek these things out if you want to, out of, you know, historical curiosity or whatever, but they're not in a position where they're going to offend people or hurt people or, you know, be exploited for that kind of basis, which is right. That is absolutely right. But... You've got that lobby that act as though everything's been banned when it hasn't. What is actually banned these days? You can get hold of anything. Absolutely. Anything. You know, when I was when I was younger, you know, if Frankie Goes to Hollywood record was banned from the radio, that was it. You had to buy it to hear it. Hardwick House, the ITV sitcom that was taken off after two episodes. Yeah. It took decades for that to re-emerge. You know, the video nasties, when they were banned, you know, you try getting hold of them. It was not easy. At the time of recording, less than a week ago, BBC Four played Blazing Saddles. And yet there were people for weeks beforehand saying, oh, they'd never show Blazing Saddles now. And they did. Yeah. I mean, I am all in favour of... I mean, some people listening to this might know that I occasionally do sleeve notes for BBC Records reissues. And in the Faulty Mm. Towers one, you know, it is a sketch where, you know, the major is being treated by Basil Faulty as an old racist, really. Basil is very dismissive of him. It has unfortunate language in it. And my view was it should say in the sleeve notes, look, this is there. It was serving a purpose in its time. It doesn't sound right now. But, you know, yeah. you listen listen to it and make your own mind up. And I think that's a fair way of approaching things. This idea that if you put a caption at the start of something, you know, you're giving into political correctness. No, you just, it's politeness. That's all it is. Really. It is. It's giving you the choice. Everything, we've never had so much access to stuff ever as we have now. And if the price of that is a little disclaimer or a warning at the beginning of, you know, a broadcast, then great. So, so what? Sellers gets the rap as being like the person that people, well, you look at the the sketch show, Goodness Gracious Me. Obviously, they took their name from that song. And I think they were going to, were they going to call the show something like Peter Sellers is dead originally? Yes, it was originally going to be called Peter Sellers is dead. And I remember seeing a documentary where they did discuss that and said that they thought, well, we quite like Peter Sellers otherwise. Mm. And 
I one of the, I don't want to attribute a name because I can't remember which of the cast it was. One of them said something along the lines of, you know, and the caricatures were wrong, but you know he wasn't playing, you know, stupid or evil or conniving characters. They were, you know, competent professionals and that sort of thing. And I think calling the show "Goodness Gracious Me" and having the you know, kind of reverse engineered version of the song where, you know, it's on traditional Indian instrumentation. And then that that kind of really obnoxious British accent saying, goodness gracious me, that was such a dignified comment on it. That really says it all without being provocative, without, you know, being, you know, drawing undue attention to things, without taking a stance. It's basically just saying, you know, this song caused a lot of problems to us when we were growing up. This is our response to it. And I think it's a pretty good response, actually. So the next track is Salah's wheeling out his Alec Guinness impression as uh, Sir Eric Goodness uh, in an interview. Was it conducted by Graham Stark, I suspect? I'm not quite sure who the interviewer is. Yeah, it's not credited, is it? But this is a fascinating sketch because I didn't realise until recently it was actually written by Leslie Bracuza, who obviously co-wrote all those musicals with Anthony Newley. And it's clearly yes. based mm-hmm. on people he'd met in the profession. I'm absolutely yeah. certain about that. And the other interesting thing is because, I mean, let's just, you know, this is interesting to say in balance. He's a, he's a thick actor who is culturally appropriating, who gets away with it because of his posh voice, who complains about having to brown up on stage and how it stains his clothes. So, you know, that's <laughs> immediately a counterpoint to goodness gracious me. But the thing is that this is, I can never remember the name of the character, but he's a, a Far East mystic who calls himself Smith because that's his mystic name. <laughs> and it did make me wonder, was that an influence on... In the Ruttles, all you need is cash when the Ruttles visit Arthur Sultan, the Surrey mystic. Because <laughs> I'm sure yeah. Eric Idle must have heard this. And, you know, I'm not yes. saying he copied it. It was probably just at the back of his mind somewhere that that made him laugh. Mm. And there's, there's got to be a direct line there. But it's a really, really, really good sketch. You know, not just the right, the way Sellers performs it as well. He really gets across the idea of this guy who. Might have been a you know vibrant actor in his youth, but he's now just doing it for the money. He doesn't really care about the role. He's not invested in it. He just knows the details and that's it. But thinks it's the most important thing ever done. Yeah, because he sounds like he's he's being interviewed under sufferance. He's he's yeah. there's, there's quite length quite lengthy pauses between question yes. and answer. <laughs> yes, he does not want to be there. But... <laughs> Then we've got Sophia Loren. Um, was she, what was her, I didn't actually do any research on her sort of recording career, if if any, outside of this. Did she actually release any albums off her own back, do you know? Not really. She did bits and pieces for films that she was in. And I think that was pretty mm. much it. Whereas, you know, you've got things like, you know, you've got people like Bridget Bardot, who've got this really unacknowledged extensive recording career of fantastic re- have you ever heard any of her records no well, i haven't works uh, with, you know the like the uk's didn't... top session men doing insane psychedelic records about stealing motorbikes and so on actually did she work at all with um serge gainsbourg uh yeah he wrote a couple of songs for her and they did the original je t'aime which her husband wouldn't allow that's to it. be released because cause that's what i was thinking i'll be honest yeah. with you that is a little off the scale that if you've ever heard right. that if you think if you think the more 
better known you tell me Shane Burke in his bad that I don't know what was going on in the recording studio, but <laughs> some I'm sure they might have had to uh, at least kind of demiss the windows afterwards. I'm imagining Roy Kinnear as a recording engineer with his little little, little glasses steaming up. <laughs> have you ever heard Up Shatem by Frankie Howard no. and June Whitfield? Where Good it's Shatem no. in in character as Lurkio and was June Whitfield ever actually in up Pompeii, but whoever she was, where she's mm. trying to come on to him, it's going, oh, give over. <laughs> it's <laughs> the best thing about it was that I remember uh, it was on when Room 101 used to be on Radio 5, BBC Radio 5, as it was oh, then yeah. when it very first started. It was on the edition mm. with David Bedale, who pointed out that it was called Up Shatem, just in case you've forgotten who Frankie Howard is. It's half past three. Mm-hmm. Oh, get off. Now, look, stop that. What's got into you? So, yeah, so... But, yeah, I, so sings... I was off... Yes, yeah, she, she's done occasional bits and pieces, but she didn't really have a recording career as such. I think there's a couple of things, a couple of EPs, you know, from films, and I think that's it, really, because uh, this album was actually reissued by Cherry Red, I think, earlier this year, and, you know, they go overboard with the bonus tracks for things and they were really scraping around for additional content for this because, you know, once you got all the seller stuff, you got a couple of her other singles and there's themes from films she was in that she's not on. <laughs> or, Correct. you know, just to give some value, extra content. But, yeah, it's a very, very, you know, the vault is not exactly overflowing, should we put it that way? Uh, but, no, but Zooby Zooby Zoo is the Loren, little Loren number. Uh, charming little piece of music yeah it's just a straight up love song really and it was actually it's written by alan chu who was a very prolific library music composer i mean probably the most obvious one is he wrote a piece of music it was originally for an itv series but it ended up being used for the two ronnies charlie farley and piggy malone sketches you know stop mm, your killing me okay. and all them the theme from yeah. that was alan chu he did a couple of other sort of you know, things that were quite commonly used in TV and films around that time. Uh, but he also wrote this, which seems a bit out of character, I must say. I've not hmm. noticed his name on many credits on the, you know, the many weird and wonderful 60s albums that I've bought. So yeah, I wonder what yeah. story was there. The next track, I'm sure you've got a lot to talk about because I was getting real, because it's Ukulele Lady which is the mm. Temperance 7 with with Peter Sellers. And, and I was getting real sort of Bonzo's, Albert's vibes from it. I mean, the thing is, it's not actually funny. That's the, <laughs> that's the thing about it. It, it. The concept of it is funny, but there's no actual jokes in it, really. I mean, I think the whole joke is kind of, it's supposed to be like an archive recording. It's very scratchy. People kept doing that in the 60s for some mm. reason. Things like Magnolia Sims by the Monkees, they just kept going back to it i mean I, the beatles didn't actually do it did they apart from some bits on the christmas flexies mm. but i'm sure they probably thought about doing your mother should know like covered in scratches and so on and you know there's a bill oddie did a record like that and you know it, it was just it seemed to be a common joke around that that point and 
Well, in Python, there's the bit where the vox popping people about life in the city, you know, with the bloke who said, I've been in the city for 20 years, I must admit, I'm lost. But mm. there's a gramophone record of John Cleese's voice saying, I've been in the city since where, but I'm, I'm as alert and active as ever. For some reason, they found gramophones funny in those days. I yes. can't work out why. But the Temperance Seven are really interesting because they'd sort of forgotten about now. But you're right, they were from exactly the same kind of background as the Alberts, as the Bonzo Dog Doodah band. They were apparently the band used in the original stage performances of the Bed Sitting Room in the early 60s, you know, the Spike Milligan and John Antrobus film. Mm. Uh, They had a number one hit with You're Driving Me Crazy in 1961, a Mm. couple of months after this. They're in the wrong box, that incredible sprawling film, which Peter Sellers is in, which I absolutely love. I mean, it's all over the place, but it is so funny that that scarcely seems to matter. It, is it yeah. possible to describe the wrong box in one sentence? I'm not sure it is, but it well, does have just, the line, it's... Cousin Morris is wearing no trousers, if you say so, sir, which is <laughs> possibly the line I've laughed at the most in a film ever, but... That, you know, they were all over things like that. And do you ever see them mentioned now? Even the new vaudeville band are more remembered, who again, were part of, what what was the craze for comedy kind of 20-style troops in the 60s? I don't know. That and gramophones. What was going on? The other key thing that I think we all forget about, even I tend to forget about this, and you know, I think about it a lot, is that the key thing we're missing in the 50s and 60s in particular is the visual element, the stage show side of it. I I don't think you could even really replicate it on TV properly in those days that things were geared towards live performance and you know the jokes were based on interactions with the audience. I mean it's a bit late on but the example I always point to is it's a bit after I'm interested in Pink Floyd. I only really like the first incarnation with Sid Barrett in the band Mm -hmm. but on Atom Heart Mm -hmm. Mother there's that track Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast where it's basically the sound of somebody making breakfast and you think, even allowing for sonic experimentation, you think, what is the point of that? <laughs> and eventually, a live recording surfaced where the audience are falling about laughing. You know, all these serious hippies because they're actually making the breakfast on stage <laughs> and doing a commentary. And, you know, would you would you have thought on the basis of that recording that that was the case? I mean, I would imagine... The Temperance Seven, the Alberts, and everyone probably did a lot of very funny things live. Mm. That it's like there's quite a few. I've got the tie-in albums of some '60s stage shows, like Mrs. Wilson's Diary, The Private Eye, yep. stage musical, and so on. Where you do sit there wondering what actually went on. I mean, is there any proper recording of? Uh, Harry Seacombe in Pickwick, which obviously was a huge... That mm. ran for years in the West End in the mid-60s. Yeah. And the soundtrack album sold in huge quantities. Never seen what it was like. You know, maybe he did it like Highway. Maybe he stood in the middle of a dual carriageway. <laughs> the audience had to stand outside. I don't know. But it's, it's only really with the rise, first of DVD and then of streaming media, that, you know, everything gets captured now. But even that recently... Things would come and go without being properly captured. And what I'm now wondering is, did Sellers ever do any of the sketch material here in any other context? And we just don't know about it. We've got no way of knowing. Yeah, quite possibly. Milligan used to say, and you know what Milligan was like, depending on what mood he was in. And when you when you caught him, he would, you know, he'd contradict himself week in, week out. But he used to say that the actual Goon Show rehearsals 
far outweighed the actual recorded shows in terms of hilarity. I can I can see that, but I will say in balance that I do know they repeated the last Goon Show of all on BBC Two in it would have been nineteen eighty six when it was uh, fifty years of TV. I think was the celebrations. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it and thinking. It looks like they're having more fun yeah. than watching this is. So there's that angle to it as well. But obviously, you know, in the when they were making the original shows, they had the sense to have that separation between what they did in rehearsals and what was suitable for going out on air, which I don't know your opinion the last Goon show of all, but it no, doesn't really get that right, does it? No, it doesn't. And it's there's no real there's no real plot. I mean, there's not really a plot to most Goon shows, but it really was just Milligan writing a string of gags and just joining them together, pretty much. And and like you say, yeah, that the, they look like they're having a lot more fun than anyone else, and that's always the death, <laughs> including <male>. Princess Anne. <laughs> yeah. The voices as well. Um, mm. Sellers had got older; they'd all got older. The voices, Blue Bottle wasn't quite quite right blue bottle sounded a, a little bit croaky so they were a bit rusty i suppose and maybe if they because there was talk about it you know there being other shows after that there, there was talk about uh getting them all back together to record some more but they, they never did and, and maybe if they had they'd have shaken off the cobwebs and, and become a, a tighter team again who knows and, you know, sometimes seeing, you know, the actual something in, in, in its unedited glory isn't as exciting as people like to think. I mean, you've got things like, I must be the only person in the world who prefers the shorter version of The Wicker Man, the early 70s horror film, to, you know, the mm. the fabled longer cut. I think, you know, basically getting an entire episode of Zed Cars at the start of that, which I am, I do, oh, I yes. have not come to The Wicker Man for, you know, there's... <laughs> I like that they edit down the Doctor Who studio tapes on the DVDs because, you know, I don't want to see, you know, somebody endlessly walking back and forth, putting different bits of masking tape down on the floor for indicate where to stand or Tom Baker losing his temper a lot or that sort of thing. And the bits that are highlights tend to sneak out anyway. You know, like that famous play school outtake of Fred Harris losing his temper with the toys in a comic fashion. No, I don't don't know that. never seen that. No. They, they all keep falling over while he's reading a story. <laughs> he stands up and says, why do I have to work with these amateurs? And like punches <laughs> them all over. <laughs> so then we get to, on the uh, on the album, we get to uh, Sellers as a kind of, I, I describe the voice as a, as a, as a refined blood knock. Um, he's this sort of mildewed, elderly gentleman delivering a monologue about being um, a young shaver with his unruly mates and the game of setting fire to the policeman. Yeah, which is a, a very funny item that sometimes when you think about the implications of it, yeah. you think, hang on, this isn't actually that funny. <laughs> you know, the reality is it's horrific. It is. It really, really <laughs> is. But there's, there's two interesting things about it, though, which is one that I don't think a lot of people realise now, that this sort of stuff was all over BBC Radio in the 50s. You know, droll raconteurs recalling their youth. Yes. Yes. And it was it was right for send up because some of the bits I've heard, even on some of those early BBC records and tapes albums, just people going on and on and on about how how much more fun than you they had in their day in very <laughs> boring voices. And the other thing is, it was written as were quite a few of the speech items on this album by someone called Peter Munro Smith, on whom yes. I've always drawn an almost complete blank. 
I know he wrote for a couple of radio shows. He wrote for Roy Hood, and he also wrote Roy Hood's album, Hood Done It, from around the same time as this. <laughs> right. which is, it's both the best and the worst title it could have had, because <laughs> it's funny, but it doesn't actually make much sense when you think about it. It doesn't really work as a pun. But he's really mysterious. You can't find many credits for him at all. Yeah, because I looked. I tried looking on, on Google, obviously. I tried looking him up, and... And I wondered for a while, was that was it like a pseudonym? Possibly, because this is a really high-profile gig for somebody with no experience. Yeah, and and I, I was thinking as well. It reminded me because obviously, like you say, it's very dark. And, and at one point, he's talking about not exactly a corpse, but this charred policeman sort of lying yes. on the ground. <laughs> and I was thinking, is it, it evoked um, uh, Auntie Rotter? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, because that Auntie Rotter is a perfect example of something where when you stop and think about it out of its context, it is horrendous. I mean, there's the, for me, the example I always come back to is when Chris Morris had a radio on DJ show, Mm -hmm. there was a hilarious episode where somebody had posted their tortoise in for him to autograph. And so, because he was always doing insane running storylines like this, where they'd sent their tortoise in for him to autograph and send back. (laughs) Right. And it, it, on air, it accidentally gets, the shell gets smashed with sound effects. I need advice from somebody. I've got a tortoise in a bad situation here. Mm. It got sent to me through the post. I was in absolute hysterics of that as a student with a slightly, you know, off-centre sense of humour. And when you think about that for a second, you know, they did some things from those shows in the later TV shows. They did not do anything even remotely resembling that, because mm. if you take it out of that context, it is awful. And like, if you saw the text of setting fire to the policeman written down, I don't think you'd sleep at night, really. Very well written as well. It absolutely captures the tone of those nostalgia dronathons. <laughs> yeah, I always absolutely think of, nails it. I always think of the older gentlemen that they interviewed for programs like The Great War. Yes, I mean it's not even the, the thing about it as well is he is doggedly caught on that point on that narrative. It's not like a Grandpa Simpson thing, you know, where they go yes. on about I tied an onion to my belt, which is the fashion of the day. Yeah. He is all he talks about is how they set fire to policemen. You know, the role each child had. <laughs> it's like an anecdote gone horribly, horribly nightmarishly wrong. <laughs> That's right, because they've got the golden-haired child. Yes! The, the angelic, <laughs> cherubic-faced, golden-haired child who summons the constable. And then they've got the, the boy who's fast, who runs off to get the, the fire appliance, as he calls it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. This album is quite dark in places. We've not even got onto some of the other tracks as well, where it really, really kind of... People must have bought this, you know, thinking there's that funny man from the radio and that woman I quite fancy out of films. You know, people won't have been expecting some of the twists and turns this takes. Mm. So, yeah, because then we come on to Bangers and Mash, which is probably, well, I, I guess that would be the second most... Uh, well-known song from this from this album and it's the flip side of you know everything that's kind of worrying now about goodness gracious me because it is the other perspective on it it is the idiot closed-minded englishman who somehow looked in and married this you know 
exotic European woman who's trying to introduce her to all kinds of other aspects of culture, mm. and he just wants bangers and mash like me mum used to make. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's not shit that's not really left us, has it? It's still around all no. the time. And even in, uh, let's not go into the whole kind of what I'm talking about here, about, you know, the debate that's been going on in the past couple of years, but you can get <laughs> bangers and mash made different ways, mate, you know. <laughs> She does a terrible Cockney accent. I'm not even sure if it's a Cockney <laughs> accent. It's just her doing a doing a voice. Uh, yeah. He he lapses into the 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 accent he uses in After the Fox. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but be fair, I, I assume you've heard Peter Sellers's Scouse accent on Now Is the Winter of Our Discontent. The track that yes. mysteriously wasn't issued on the Beatles EP because I don't think he's ever heard anyone from Liverpool. <laughs> Seems to zigzag right across, not just the northwest, but eventually the north. Now, we've got a couple of what I would call slight tracks. We've got Oh, Lady Be Good, the George Gershwin number. That I actually really like that. I right. find it funny, you know, is the speeded up singing he does on it, because he, ju- he doesn't just rely on the fact that it's sped up to be funny. You know, um, I mean, I'm a great defender of David Bowie's 60s material. The Laughing Gnome in particular, I think, is mm. an unjustly criticised record. I great think it's, song. Yeah. It's weirder than people give it credit for. <laughs> but Bowie doesn't do anything with the speeded up voice apart from have it speeded up. You know, it's not that, puns aside, it's not that different to the mice in Bagpuss singing We Will Fix It. Whereas mm. Sellers has clearly thought about what will sound funny speeded up if I go up in this bit or go da 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 really fast here. And then at the end, he does a joke about... I know you're tempted to play this at 16 RPM. <laughs> uh, if you must do, here's how you do it. But think of our poor backroom boys who spent ages putting this together. Which, and I, I, that's something you don't really hear about anymore. The backroom boys, you know, the, the boffins who make records and programs and so on, because they weren't superstars in those days, the way, you know, kind of animation designers on might be now. It's kind of, you know, on. Things like Multicoloured Swap Shop on the BBC on a Saturday morning when Noel Evans occasionally see, mm. let's go and see what trickery the backroom boys are up to. And he you know, talked to very kind of, <laughs> you know, doing it for the money men, going, uh, well, we call this camera Noddy because it, it's the code for it is Noddy and it also sort of nods a bit. And I used to love see the contrast between seeing the technology and how bored and boring the, the men that work things were. yeah because I, I was first exposed to that i guess with kenny everett's video show exactly that and also you know you get things like i mean george martin was hardly the i mean he obviously became a famous name by default but people like him are very by the book i mean going back to my mention of pink floyd i mean one thing i'm astonished by is just how much control the original producer, Norman Smith, who was the EMI staffer, had over those early recordings, how he whipped them into shape. And I think it's something to sell her overdrive where they were taking too long to get the drums right at the end. And he just said, oh, I'll do it. And, you know, just did the <laughs> drum roll at the end. So these were, you know, men who were doing a job. You know, they, they weren't angling for celebrity or being on the other side of the camera. Yeah, yeah but how many, how many Beatles tracks did George Martin appear on? Yeah, and yet, do people even realise he did? You know, people don't even really listen to his side of the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, which is something that really annoys me, because I love that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we've got To Keep My Love Alive, Rogers and Hart song. Yeah, it's from a stage musical, isn't it? Uh, which is very macabre, because it is just a 
Sophia Loren's character talking about how she's killed all her husbands in yeah. comic but quite nasty ways. And I'm going to say this, the way she spits out some of the lines, she is thinking of some of the men in her life, I think. Well, I mean, there's not much I can do about it, is there? I mean, uh, well, uh, it's up to the government, isn't it? I mean, they started all this here um, atomic lark, didn't they? Well, what I says is let them finish it if they started it. That's what I say. Let let them sort it out and 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 leave us old people alone. Yes, but what are your views on, for example, the moral implications of nuclear warfare if such a thing should ever come to pass? Well, I mean, uh, you only die once, can't you? I mean, it's like we used to say in the war when the Bosch was dropping all his stuff. I mean, if yours numbers on the stuff what he's dropping. Well, you have to keep smiling, really, isn't you? I mean, that's how we went and licked Hitler. I mean, we, we packed up our troubles and rolled out our barrels and all that sort of thing, caper. And, and we've got Why Worry, which is the next track, which is basically a series of Vox Pops. Uh, Sellers doing his uh, William uh, Mate Cobbler's character, mm-hmm. who I think in if, if he was around in 2016, I think I know which way he'd have voted. Um, yes, and he, he's, he's, he, he's there chunnering on about the war and how he pretty much single-handedly defeated the Bosch. And then you've got Sellers doing a sort of a blousy woman, which which got shades of blue bottle, then an old duffer, and then a, a quite seductive woman. Um, and they're they're just talking about nuclear proliferation, I think. Yeah, that's a bit of a another dark term for the album. Mm. And you know, there are some barbs in there as well. I mean, one of them does actually say, don't they? You know. Um, the politicians, they all started it. They can sort it out. Mm. No, it's just kind of a, a fair enough attitude. But the thing about soliciting public opinion when it's not needed or wanted or doesn't have any value does have more currency now. You know, it's everywhere. You, look, you cannot avoid it. You know, I, I'm one of those people who never reads beneath the line on anything that I write. I, mm. I like it when people are nice to me. <laughs> Quite often people are just off on... It's not even when people are rude or offensive, which, you know, they're going to be. That's life. But it's when people just go off on their own flights of fancy. And I think, write your own article, mate. <laughs> but it goes right back to, you know, this. There's Quatermass in the Pit, you know, which is a BBC yeah. serial from the late 50s, opens with a parody of news people not being told anything by the authorities. So they start asking the public what they think about, you know, this mysterious capsule being discovered in Hobbs yes. Lane. And then yeah. there's the Teddy boy going, uh, missing links, all right, if they want to have it. And <laughs> and they say to his girlfriend, do you actually mean that? Yes, I do. You know, that, that people were sick of it even back then, but it's never gone away. You know, in, in the past, obviously, this kind of thing that we're parodying, you might have been like a local celebrity for a couple of days if you were actually Vox popped about nuclear war on not even the TV, on the radio news. Yeah. You know, people yeah, said, yeah, I yeah. heard you on the wireless. So <laughs> talking absolute <laughs> nonsense about the, you know, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis or whatever. But yeah. uh, So Grandpa's Grave, which uh, again is, is Sellers doing, a, doing his William voice and also what I like to call Peter Sellers doing his Peter Sellier voice. Yes, yeah. Well, this has got more interesting history than I expected. It 
Apparently, it's based on an old vaudeville song that nobody knows who wrote it, which is an interesting mystery. They went through a couple of iterations. Apparently, this one was inspired by... There was a... Because people kept rewriting it as well. And there's one in the 50s by... I'm not very familiar with him, a comedy folk singer called Oscar Brand from his 1955 album, Bawdy Songs Goes to College. Songs plural, not Bawdy <laughs> Song Goes to College, Bawdy <laughs> Songs. Well, that is performed here by the, apparently the Prince of Cockney Entertainers, Eugene Squiff. Mm. And again, it's quite a dark song, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's funny in the way that something like The Remembrance by Jake Thackeray it's funny about, you know, you're going to be treated badly by authority and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. It's, you know, it's that bleakness that they are going to move this old cemetery because, you know, some posh twit wants to sue her. Yeah. <laughs> then, like you say, he does present the other side of the case. I don't know if this is common to other versions or not. I will admit I've not gone and listened to other recordings of this, but right. he has the town planner replying at the end. Mm. About why they're doing it. And then they, and they do a little duet at the end, the two of them. Yes. Yeah. Most of the characters that Sellers plays seem quite tired of life, don't they? I read somewhere that Sellers, to a certain degree, had to be sort of coerced into making this record. Right, okay. Well, that, that is interesting in itself, because that could have affected his mood in itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and then we've got the track, which is probably my favourite on, on the album, which is I Fell in Love with an Englishman which is gloriously funny. And it's got Sellers, I call it his Jeremy Lloyd voice. <laughs> it's, a, it's a silly ass Tim Nice But Dim voice mm. before Tim Nice But Dim was, was a thing. It was, it's Sellers just hamming it up uh, and, it's, and it's wonderful. And it's a very charming song as well. She has fallen in love with this hopeless, useless man who is not reprehensible in any way he's just completely ineffectual <laughs> and blind to everything that's going on around him yes and there's just something quite charming about that he looked at me with those eyes those heavenly cool blue eyes and said i dare i dare you're not by any mercious chance interested in cricket are you i suppose it was then that my life really began <laughs> Of course I adored his sense of humour. Every woman did. Those sparkling flashes of wit that were so characteristic like the... Yes, like the time he spilled a cup of tea down his trousers and said... Oh, yeah. I've gone and spilled tea all down my trousers. <laughs> yeah, I think this this one is holds up the best as well. I think this this is one that you could play to a room full of school children. Mm. And I think they would get something out of it. And we can't really say the same for the next track. <laughs> oh, God, no. Uh, Africa Today. Again, it's um, Peter, our friend Peter Munro-Smith. Yeah, it's interesting because it really goes in for the attack on, you know, these horrible people that hark back to the days of the empire and colonialism. It's completely... I mean, cutting long story short, it's a guy that's been asked to give a talk about the birds, beasts, fishes and insects that he encountered in Africa. But he wants to talk instead about how he maltreated the natives. Yes. And again, other than the, the actual subject, there's no offensive language in it. In fact, it actually goes in on the attack when there's a bit where he refers to the boys and he says, they were always called boys, although some of them may often be mature mm. men with large families. Mm. It is basically telling 
you know, these horrible racist old men that, you know, you probably still got all over the, the radio in particular in those days to sling their hook, you know, absolutely put a sock in it. We don't want to hear this, but something about it just doesn't sit comfortably these days, despite the fact its intention could not be clearer. No, yeah. Yeah. The intention is very clear, but it's, yeah, I was listening to that and, and I was, my teeth were kind of go, Ooh, you know, it's probably because it doesn't go in hard enough on the attack. I mean, you know, as we both said, the the intent is there, but it doesn't really hammer the nail in, which mm-hmm. yeah, probably wasn't the dumb thing in those days, not for cultural reasons, but for comedic reasons. People didn't really, really put, and the modern phrase, I suppose, is push the envelope, but that far those days i mean you think of the best example would be probably peter cook and dudley moore were considered in not only but also days to be you know verging on the uncouth and the outrageous and the radical yes. and then 10 years later they do Derek and clive <laughs> yeah and that you know the the difference between although there's a clear linear path from one to the other the difference could not be more marked you know the mm, mm. the pythons still in the tv shows one or two sketches aside, you know, like The Undertaker and so on, are relatively tame compared to what they did in the films. Yeah. Even Spike Milligan got a bit more on the nose later on. I mean, I've I've never seen the production of the original script of The Bed Sitting Room. I wonder how different that is than the film, which the film is quite savage in its own way. Mm. Yeah. And that was something that only became possible later in the decade, I think, because, you know, the... It was a more restrictive atmosphere. I mean, people forget there was actual state censorship at the theatre until, was it 1968? Yeah, 67, Where all scripts were vetted yeah. by the... Lord was it Chamberlain. Lord Chamberlain? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, the thing, it just became freer later on. And I think this suffers from that. It falls into an unfortunate trap because it doesn't really lock its teeth into its target. It's not forgiving, it's not giving leeway to that attitude, but it doesn't quite, you know, grab it like a dog and fling it around. <laughs> it's yeah, it's not shouting loud enough that we are satirizing these yeah. objectionable people. Yes. Uh, and then the the LP closes with uh, fare thee well. It's two people who clearly have dated for a bit and do not like each other and they're just saying, yeah, bye now. It has a weird resonance in the present day when, you know, you meet somebody on a nap it doesn't go too well and you're both saying to each other over WhatsApp, yeah, nice to meet you, but, you know, ooh, I'm a bit busy at the moment. Yeah, well, so am I. Yeah, I think I'm busier than you. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that kind of abrasion and it's really funny. It works really well. Then you've got that lovely bit at the end where they come out of character, but they're still arguing with each other about, are you going to throw a coin in the fountain, Sophia? No, I'm going to throw you in. And then you hear the door slam and then ride off on the... They sort of walk off the distance, there's the door, and they ride off on the moped, and that's the end of the album. Yes. That's a very George Martin sort of thing. It's a great way to end this album, though. I, I think when I very first heard it, this was the track I liked the most. Because it had so much that I wanted, including you know, the clear George Martin influence over proceedings as well. Because that's the thing about I mainly got Peter Sellers' albums because 
you know, I love George Martin's production so much. The weirder, the better. I mean, I love Time Beat, that record he did with the Radiophonic Workshop. Mm. Everything he worked on, up to a point, because I'm not that keen on this stuff in the 70s when, you know, he's producing AOR bands and stuff. Like America. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to America, but I think he really was kind of... He was there to make sure it sounded all right. In the 60s, good Lord, he saw it as his job to make sure that whoever came into the studio, whoever it was with him, whether it was... Whether it was Silla Black, whether it was Jerry the Pacemakers, whether it was some people we don't talk about now, mm. whether it was the cast of That Was The Week That Was, it was his job to make them sound as good on the record as possible. And he did not stint from that at all. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that this album does conclude with a clear bit of, you know, George Martin instigated nonsense, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's he was so good. I think he doesn't get enough credit for how good he was at producing spoken word comedy. I've said before that most comedy records aren't funny now. You know, they're likable in their own way. You know, but things like the records that people like Morecambe and Wise made aren't funny. Mm. Or Tommy Cooper or whatever. Ones produced by George Martin are still incredibly funny. And I think that's because he was always thinking of the listener. I mean, well, I, 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 one I, of my favourite... I, I don't know, the, the Frankie Howard, June Woodfield, Jatain record sounds yeah. great. <laughs> but I think possibly my favourite thing he did with Peter Sellers is an outtake that turned up on the Celebration of Sellers box set. This is one of those ones where the timing is so spot on because it appears to be improvised Well, George Martin was clearly standing over them, directing them, which is a right bird. Which oh yes. I was just describing it. it starts with Seller saying, Oh, she was a right bird, wasn't she? And its mate just doesn't know what he's talking about. He just got to say, What? Who? And he just keeps going <laughs> mad into descriptions about, you know, don't you remember? She's up there, she's saying anyone could have her arm, am... fell over. No. Was that our Regis girl? Not our Regis girl, but it just concludes and says, Oh yeah, her, what about her? Oh, she was a right bird, wasn't she? Yeah. Well and, you know the, the, it's that kind of control he had over proceedings because that that probably if they'd just done that, you know, in front of a microphone with a less steady grip on proceedings, it'd be they'd be collapsing in fits of laughter all over the place. There'd be gags that didn't go anywhere. Whereas that's bam, 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 mm-hmm. and I don't think that's all down to Peter Sellers because, no. as we've seen, he wasn't always good at disciplining himself in the recording studio. Oh God! No, that's, it, that's it. Now you've you've also previously said that if there was no best of sellers, there'd have been no Beatles. Absolutely, I'm convinced of that because that isn't just a comedy record. There's so many spot-on musical pastiches in that that sound absolutely convincing. I mean, one thing that makes me fall about laughing, and I can't explain why, is in Ballam Gateway to the South, mm. when that bit of music comes in that's like newsreel music, but a bit silly. Mm. You know, where he goes, do, 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 yep. do. And that's George Martin copying a style, but making it funny. And, you know, he'd learnt all those lessons. Then when he comes to do even the early Beatles records, they are so much more inventive than almost anything else that was going on at that point. You know, don't get me wrong, I like people like, well, even, I even like people like Freddie and the Dreamers, but there's nothing distinguished about the recordings. The only people that come close to the Rolling Stones, who I think, despite what they might have said, were very much enthralled to what the Beatles were doing anyway. People listening to this might know, but I got not quite in trouble, but a couple of years ago when Boris Johnson said that stupid thing about the Beatles had to come to London to be any good. Mm. And I 
in the days when I did interact with people like that on Twitter, I reply say, no, they had to meet George Martin. That's different. And that got picked up by the Daily Mail and things like that. It briefly became a, you know, not quite frightening, but it was a bit kind of, when is this going to end? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. but I, I stand by that. It was the collision of them and their humour and their ideas. Because, you know, they've been developing crazy ideas between themselves, the three of them, really. I mean, poor old Pete Best, by all counts, and I say this, you know, not just from what I've read in books, let's put it that way, but that he didn't really kind of get their off-the-wall ideas. You know, then they meet Ringo, who I think the first thing they do with him is they go to see a gal- you know, an exhibition at a gallery. And he's he's the missing thing there. So they've got all these crazy ideas, they've got this crazy sense of humour. They meet this producer that knows how to channel those mm. into not just the music, but the way they presented themselves as well. And he, I mean, even and he knows the goons. The cover, and he's worked with the goons. Yes, yeah. Mm. Oh, well, the Beatles clearly had all their records. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. I'm not going to say the Beatles wouldn't have, wouldn't have existed without Peter and Sophia. I think that might be a little <laughs> bit yeah. far-fetched. But certainly, I think there is a, you know, there is a direct, direct correlation there. Well, you make a strong argument. Thank you. <laughs> Tim, thank you very much for coming on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, I must admit, it's been many years since I've listened to Peter and Sophia, and I really did enjoy listening to it again. Tim, in terms of you know what you do, where people can seek out your stuff? Best place is probably timworthington.org, which is my main website, which has got links to my Twitter. I'm out on Blue Six on there. The things that I think people who like the goons will be most interested in are Looks Unfamiliar, which I've already yeah. mentioned, which is a podcast about i say things that the guest remembers and no one else seems to but yeah it isn't a strict it's it if it's a personal story to you about you know say nobody believing you that some film existed that yeah might be quite well known but you know we talk about sometimes very strange things that people <laughs> have lodged in people's memories that you know nobody else has got a clue about uh i would also say that Possibly some interest. There's minimal goon content in both, but there is some. But I wrote a book about comedy on Radio 1 called Fun at 1 and Radio 3 called The Lark's Ascending, which has a bit about Milligan and John Antrobus in it. There's a bit of Benteen in there as well. They didn't do that much, but they're probably the most interesting things. I don't know how many people listening to this would be interested in my Marvel podcast, but it does exist. So mm. <laughs> okay. Marvel never did the goons comics, sadly. That would have, that would have been fantastic. Marvel UK have brought the goons into the Marvel universe <laughs> and they've been alongside Captain Britain. <laughs> they, did, they did bring Bross into it in the 80s, so it could have happened. You could have had Harry Seacombe, you know, a highway comic. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't teaming up with Death's Head to stop some invaders, but... <laughs> Uh, I remember you just talking about looks unfamiliar. You, uh, you mentioned on a recent episode about Will Quack Quack. Oh yes, and yeah. I, I, I remember Will Quack Quack, and I don't know how, but I just do. Probably because it bored you so much. <laughs> it, it was a cartoon in which nothing. The pictures didn't even move. <laughs> about a duck in a sailor suit who did nothing and would then go quack at the end. And... If it's a duck in a sailor suit, did the did the Walt Disney Corporation not potentially have grounds for suing? <laughs> That's an interesting point. I never considered that. They were probably their lawyers probably started watching it and <laughs> fell asleep. <laughs> oh, well, Tim, listen, thank you, thank you once again for coming on, and um, thank you again. So yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Please uh, rate and review in the usual places. 
And also, I'd just like to give a shout out to the Goon Show Preservation Society. They've just recently got a new uh, Facebook page. Uh, so search for them on Facebook and also follow them on Twitter. They're at the GSPS. Yeah, please show them some support. As I say, thanks for listening. I'll be back next time. And until then, bye. Well, she was a right bird, wasn't she? Yeah. Well...